Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. When we hear the teachings that the meditation is based on, they're very profound and very moving. Ideas like developing a sensitivity to life, living a life with awareness and with compassion, the possibility of awakening a deep liberation, and the idea of understanding the roots of suffering and the possibility of happiness, seeing how grasping and pushing away leads to confusion, leads to contraction and the possibilities of, of living from a place of generosity, from a place of loving kindness and with, with wisdom. These are very noble ideas, lofty ideals. And when we hear the Dharma, we can be very inspired by them, especially practicing in this silent community and the sincerity of group practice together. But there's often quite a discrepancy between the ideals that we read about or hear, maybe touch for some moments here together, and the way we express in our daily lives who we are. And so I wanted to talk a bit tonight about bringing the practice home down to the nitty-gritty. Is it just noble aspirations that someday way into the future will embody? Or can we put our practice into practice, so to speak? can call it personalizing the Dharma, making it ours out of which, from which we live. And this is a challenge not just for beginners with the meditation or with this, uh, these teachings, or even experienced students. This is a challenge for teachers as well, for people who have been practicing for years and years to live from this place of wisdom and compassion day to day. In spite of the projections that you might have of your favorite teacher, you know, well, that person really embodies the teaching. I haven't seen many who are finished with their opinions and judgments, attachments, aversions, delusion, and so I, I give this talk for myself as well as for everyone here. How can we personalize the Dharma? <clears throat> I heard um, Sharon Salzberg talk about um, people projecting onto teachers, you know, just these lofty uh, images of, of who they are, just the embodiment of the Buddha. And she started to go on a little campaign to, to let people know how, how real she is, you know, her foibles, and, and she would get the reaction, oh, you're so humble too. You know? <laughs> so there's kind of uh, no way out of that. People will project what they will. <clears throat> Just know that from the inside, we're all quite real and, uh, and have our confusions and shortcomings. It was a, a study center uh, conference at uh, Insight Meditation Society or at, at Barry, Massachusetts um, a few months ago in which a number of teachers from different Buddhist traditions, Theravadan and uh, Zen, um, Zen teachers and a Tibetan Lama, uh, a monk and uh, Sharon and Joseph Goldstein all discussing various viewpoints of the Dharma and where there are differences, where they, where they meet. 
Uh, and uh, part of the discussion was about love and compassion. And all the teachers were agreeing how, how hard it is to personalize the Dharma. One, uh, one of these uh, members, the, the Rinpoche, Gelek Rinpoche, said that since childhood he had been practicing praying for the happiness of all sentient beings. And he would visualize all beings as little dots, you know, in this great mosaic of life. And it was very easy to express love and compassion and wish for their happiness. But when there was somebody right in front of him who was really reactive and negative and angry, the practice went out the window. You know, it was very difficult and it's a very different kind of task. Or as um, Lucy says in the Peanuts cartoon, I love humanity, it's people that I can't stand. <laughs> so, can we move from a conceptual understanding of the Dharma, the valuing of, of compassion and wisdom, to actually living day to day from that place? This is from William Blake. He says, if one is to do good, it must be done in the minute particulars. General good is the plea of the hypocrite, the flatterer, and the scoundrel. So you can talk a good talk with the Dharma, but how is it that you're expressing yourself in a day-to-day -day way? So I offer some reflections on how we can make the teachings come alive. You might have many others to, uh, to the ones that I touch on this evening. And it would be probably a useful thing to come in touch with your own uh, ways to make the practice, to make the Dharma real. First, let's take a look at what practice is and what the meditation can show us that we can bring to our daily life. Um, people have different ideas about what practice is or what they're developing or cultivating. Uh, there can be some idea of what a spiritual being is. Often around the Buddhist um, expression of spirituality, the Buddha in a statue is sitting there with a kind of Equanimity, equanimity, a detached equanimity, unruffled by, by the world. And sometimes we can have great efforts to develop calm and balance and be like a Buddha. And those efforts can lead at times into a tendency of cool indifference. That's what it's about. I won't be bothered. I'm not attached. Um, this would be a great mistake because the practice is more than a detached equanimity. Mindfulness, besides the wisdom of seeing things clearly, has a very real caring component that enables us to bring an interest, to really be here with interest and connection with life as it's presenting itself right now. You have to care. You have to, it takes some real commitment to bring yourself into this moment with what you're seeing as an ache in your body or a wandering mind. If you don't care enough about the development of the qualities of wisdom, if you don't care enough about life to bring yourself into this moment, it would be much easier to run away, go to a beach or do some... Sufi dancing or some other more delightful spiritual practice. And if our hearts aren't involved, it can become very dry and detached. And it's very difficult to practice from that place, as you might know from your own experience. One teacher, Christina Feldman, refers to that dry or detached practice as a transcendental lobotomy. You, know, you can see the breath in and out. Oh, I'm very good at noticing the breath. 
in, out, in and out. I must be quite spiritual. You know, well, that's a nice trick, you know, but what's the point? To say that you can follow some breaths? There's a, an image in the teachings of a bird with two wings, wisdom and compassion, needing to be in balance. And if it's only wisdom that's developed without the heart, without the caring, there's a tendency to go overboard into a coolness, into a, uh, a sterility in practice. And besides the caring element, the heart element, the involvement element, other kinds of feelings are very much a part of the expression of our spirituality. Joy, for instance, which sometimes doesn't get quite the airplay that uh, that calm or balance or uh, concentration might get in some teachings. Joy is a factor of enlightenment. <clears throat> and we can easily cut ourselves off from it or forget that this practice it can also develop, needs to develop a joyful heart. A few years ago I, I read a book, <clears throat> this beautiful book, by Robert Johnson, the, the man who wrote the He, She, and, and the We books, uh, called Ecstasy, uh, Understanding the Psychology of Joy. And he uses the, the um, myth of Dionysus as an archetype for spiritual development, that if we don't express our celebration of life, if we don't express our aliveness that Dionysus in the highest sense can uh, can exhibit or uh, symbolizes, then that kind of urge of expression of the energy and, uh, and vitality of life goes into a much lower level bacchanalia uh, which can can be expressed in forms like anger and aggression and violence and all of the things in, in our life that, um, that we fear so much in our world because there's not the, the same expression of the divine and somehow we, the outlets become much more limiting and, uh, and unskillful. So we need to bring our heart to our practice and the caring and the feelings, the vitality that, that, we, that we have inside <clears throat> so, seeing love and compassion in these feelings as a natural expression of who we are, when we don't let our minds get in the way, when we take refuge in the Buddha, we're not just taking refuge in equanimity, we take refuge in the all-compassionate one, in the embodiment of those qualities of loving-kindness. And loving-kindness is essential for practice. There needs to be a kind awareness in what you're experiencing, especially when it's difficult, so we can allow some space to explore, to investigate. Otherwise, we're too quick to contract and judge and, and push away. <clears throat> when Aldous Huxley was, was on his deathbed and, and somebody asked him, after all his exploring into uh, the spiritual and religious life and different states of consciousness, what, what it was that he found, could he, could he sum up the spiritual life in a few words? And he said, I think it just comes down to being a bit kinder. A life work of development, of investigating spirituality, just a bit kinder. <clears throat> So, seeing practice more than that detachment, how do love and compassion and the wisdom grow from the formal meditation practice? Let's take a few moments to look at that and then we'll move on to this day-to-day -day world. When you're sitting here and you see your own mind, it's very humbling, isn't it? One, one teacher calls it one insult after another. <laughs> And that's a, a good 
a good way to view it because you can get a little bit of humor when you see it that way and you see that you're not quite so alone. You see the images and the reactions, the fears and the confusion. It's very humbling. When you see how deep those, those habits, those conditionings, that conditioning is, perhaps just a little bit of kindness and a little bit of lightness can be brought to that situation. One retreat I was, I was quite diligent in my, uh, in my practice and would do walking meditation, quite slow walking meditation uh, I would get into at times. I'd be all alone and the, and the meditation would be quite uh, connected and full and and present somebody would come come into the room and all of a sudden there'd be a whole other reason for practicing in that way you know and it got so that I I'd start to use the uh, the note I sometimes use noting uh, noting practice instead of lifting moving placing it would be looking good looking good <laughs> If you can be very honest with what's going on, it will either be an exercise in self-punishment or you'll get some humor about it. And just reflect for a moment how you've related to your mind these last days, either the last two days or the last ten days. Have you noticed the difference when, when you've related to it with harshness, with frustration? or when there could be just a little bit of space of humor, of kindness. Boy, isn't it amazing? Look at it do its thing again. Just that little flip as we explore our own minds can bring a bit more compassion and ease with, with being human. <clears throat> so, seeing our own minds Something else that we're developing here that we can bring to our, our daily life is the practice of learning to listen with care. That is, developing a sensitivity to ourselves, to our environment. Have you noticed just in perhaps a couple of days as you go out and do the walking meditation, some people have mentioned this in, in the interviews, that they're struck by the beauty around them in a way that they hadn't been before. My goodness, there's a plant growing. You can feel life coming from it. And this is a process, it's a kind of fasting process, a kind of detoxifying with all the busyness and accumulations that, that we carry around with us so that there can be a heightened appreciation and sensitivity to life. With that greater possibility of learning to listen, we can learn a listen, to listen a little bit more to our inner messages, our inner voices, to the ones that come through not from a harsh judgment, not from a grasping, not from fear, but from a place of support, of, of caring, of compassion. This feels right. This doesn't feel right. And when we have that ability to give a little bit of space around the thoughts that come streaming through so rapidly, then we have a bit more of a choice to let the ones that don't serve us fly by and to give energy and, and power to the ones that do. And that is, is a very great gift that we can take out into our daily life not reacting to, reacting to every single thought that comes through, usually out of fear or, um, or grasping. That's how, how many, so many of those thoughts, uh, the source of them is. But inside there, there's a, there's a place that really knows, that's really connected. And as we practice in days and, and over long periods of time, over over years of, of doing this, this way of, of seeing, of investigating. Besides the sensitivity to ourselves, there's a sense of greater connection 
to, to life. The barriers somehow get lifted when we see through the, the illusion of our solidity, of our separateness. <clears throat> when I was a kid, I was in that space a lot, actually. I recall I had a, a carpet in my, my bedroom that had lots of speckles all throughout it. And every speckle was a living being. For a couple of years, I tiptoed around so I would, wouldn't harm as many as I could. Not when other people were there. I looked normal, you know. But everything seemed so alive to me. Or I, I don't know if you've had this experience. You know, I used to hear my records calling to play, to play them, you know, ones that I hadn't, hadn't uh, played for a while. Oh, play me. It's been so long, you know. That, that might be taking it to a bit of an extreme. <laughs> but you can probably get a sense from time to time, sometimes just being outside in nature and taking a deep breath and opening and seeing how life is just all around, outside of you and within you, and it's just life coming through you. And when we see that, <clears throat> when we can see through our separation, then what is left is love, is that sense of connection. There's a beautiful book called um, The Universe is a Green Dragon, perhaps you're familiar with, uh, in which the author Brian Swim talks about uh, the quality of allurement as a basic force in the universe. <clears throat> and uh, this quality of allurement the glue that holds the universe together. That is, on a, a subatomic level, the atoms and the molecules all sticking together. On a, a more galactic level, solar systems, galaxies, there's some force that binds. Now, perhaps ever since the, the Big Bang, this kind of urge to, to complete and connect again. And we can think of love in that same way. That's, that's the glue or the impulse that, that humans and, and sentient beings might feel, this urge to connect, to not feel separate. It's very fearful when we're separate, isn't it? And even in people's strange actions of aggression and, and anger, there is somehow just a... Um, a misguided urge to connect, often out of fear or confusion. But we can touch it here in a much more skillful way to see that there is no separation. This is a room of life that's expressing itself in many different ways. Just life playing with itself. And from that perspective that we are not separate, we can play on different levels. You know, so that this, this being, this personality that we relate to is real in a relative way. And seeing it in a much bigger context, we don't have to take it quite so seriously. Take our world and our story a bit less seriously. Now, unfortunately, we don't always display our enlightened understanding when we live our daily lives, especially when we get plugged into things, whether it's charged relationships or pressured situations. You know, somehow all the thoughts of selflessness and, uh, and compassion and, uh, and patience can fly out the window. I remember a number of years ago, I was going through a very painful uh, relationship, ending of a relationship. This is in the, in the early 70s. And I was talking with, uh, with Ram Dass. Was, this was my first encounter with him. <clears throat> and among other things, I, I talked about this relationship. And I had been talking about the Buddha and about Dharma and you know, all these spiritual ideals for the previous half hour. And he said, you know, it's interesting that 
you seem to see everything else and everybody else on their journey, but somehow when it's come to Maria, you know, this is a special case where she's supposed to be a certain way and fitting your expectations. It's so easy to lose that perspective. So what can we do besides these lofty ideas and the depth of the Dharma wisdom that's, that's there inside of us? What can we do to help us in a pragmatic way to live the Dharma? A few thoughts. First seems to be approaching with a great humility our lives. Letting go of knowing all the answers. And in that don't know mind, as Sun Sanim calls it, the great Zen master. You know, what is the meaning of life? Don't know. What's it all about? Don't know. In that, in that letting go of knowing, there can be perhaps a willingness to grow, to have new understandings, a willingness to grow, also a willingness to be wrong, especially in our relating to others. Not that they were usually wrong, but just a slight possibility that from time to time we're wrong. At least trying to understand the other person's reality and learn. Just to see what's going on in that being's mind. Because everybody's actions make sense to them. No matter how warped or confused they are, it makes sense to them. It doesn't mean that you should condone it and say, oh yes, that's, that's the right way to do it. But just slipping in for a little while to see what's going on in this other person's mind. And not just playing it safe by removing ourselves from the battleground, especially when it's, when it's people in our lives who we need to deal with, but the possibility of making mistakes, of being wrong. Um, it's risky to interact, and it's hard enough to control our own minds, let alone somebody else's out there. And I've seen in myself a lifelong habit of withdrawing when things get a little sticky. I think it's, it's a trait that's common to many people drawn to meditation. You know, there's something quite familiar about going inside, <laughs> withdrawing, closing your eyes and your, your shutter and just don't bother me. You know? I'm not saying that's your main motivation for practice, mind you, but it can be very familiar and people can hide behind that, that stance, a kind of detached coolness. You know? so the image I have sometimes is you know, pressing the eject button in what is in the old, was it the Batmobile? You know, there was a, press the eject button, you know. And you can't touch me. Uh, well, every relationship is a dynamic system. And just to reflect on perhaps what's my part in this? Hanging in there enough to grow. My relationship with, with my wife, Jane, uh, which is a, a, very, a very wonderful relationship, um, has its moments, certainly. We have a commitment to help each other wake up. That's what we're in the relationship for. When you're fortunate enough to have that kind of agreement with someone, then all the stuff that comes in the way is just like your aches and confusions on your cushion. Also, it's important to know when to pull back. You're not going to go in there and, and grapple when, uh, when you can't or when it's just too intense. <clears throat> The Buddha talked about associating with the wise, and it's interesting how the wise stop being wise when they see things differently from, from us. And sometimes we just need a little bit of space so that we can, can understand the point of view. It's so easy, though, to get caught up in blaming. They're the reason for my suffering. In practice, as you're, you're here, you probably see the roots of suffering are our own wants and expectations. Have you seen that? No. Have you seen the, the phenomenon, perhaps you're aware of the Vipassana Vendetta, no. when in silence somebody just bugs you, 
you know, no matter what they do, you know, if they weren't on this retreat, it would be much easier to practice. You know. When you take a look at that, where is that pain coming from? Where is, the, where is that reaction coming from? It's somehow this place of aversion that has landed on something. Oh, they're the reason. <clears throat> this is from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, from, a, from the journal, the Karuna journal, which is put out uh, by Kristen Penn. It's a wonderful journal. I think there'll be some copies available tomorrow. <clears throat> Thich Nhat Hanh says, When you grow lettuce, and the lettuce does not grow the way you want. You never blame the lettuce. You're intelligent enough to see that the lettuce is like that because you do not know enough about growing it. Maybe you've given it too much fertilizer. Maybe you've not prepared the soil well. You look into the present situation of the lettuce and you see the roots of the lettuce. You do not blame the lettuce. You don't say, you do not respond to my expectations. You are nasty. You are not kind to me. We're all capable of dealing with lettuce, but not with humans. But what we find out is that humans are not very different from lettuce. Did you have any fears of becoming a vegetable as you were sitting here? Humans are not very different from lettuce. They are conditioned by elements, by their roots. They need the proper kind of love and care and understanding in order to grow beautifully, just like the lettuce. If they don't grow well, they if they don't grow well, they're not fresh, they're not beautiful. Perhaps it's our fault, the grower of the lettuce. So the more artful way is to consider us as responsible for the other person and stop blaming the other person. Because we know very well that blaming and arguing does not lead anywhere. It's very useless. It can only create a gap which deepens between us and the person. You are like that because I am like this. I've not made correct effort to help you. You are my lettuce. <clears throat> Now, that doesn't mean that we blame ourselves as well, but we have a part in the system. And just to see, a willingness to see our parts. <clears throat> With that, perhaps a greater ability to forgive, forgive ourselves as well as others. And as we practice here, can we bring forgiveness to ourselves? Can we bring forgiveness to somebody coming in late or walking faster than than we think they should <clears throat> when we can't forgive what we do is not acknowledge the truth of impermanence because we hold our own image or an image of someone in that fixed way oh that's who they are it's like somebody taking a picture of you in in your worst moment as you're losing it with your kid and you're going like this and that's who they are, you know, and kind of tucking it away in your pocket, in their pockets. Twenty years later, yep, that's who they are. Okay. <laughs> Forgiveness means the recognition that people change, that things change, and that we have some unskillful moments, we have some skillful ones. Something else that perhaps we can, we can learn as we practice here together that we can bring to our lives is the value of slowing down. Have you seen the difference? Rushing prevents our personalizing the Dharma because although love and compassion can be quite natural expressions of who we are, when we're impatient, when we're rushing about, hurrying, we can't connect sufficiently with ourselves or with others so that we can let that love, that understanding be experienced. There's just not enough time. And I, as many people might know, I grew up in New York. I'm a New Yorker. I know rushing. You know? <laughs> like Bo knows football. I know rushing. You know? Uh, and in recent times, it's been really interesting practicing giving myself a bit more space just a bit more space to go on before I 
go on to the next thing. Just doing one thing at a time. Have you noticed the power of doing one thing at a time while you're here? You know, instead of juggling five or ten things. And it's interesting when you when you explore rushing, what's it about? You know, why do we feel that we have we have something important, the next thing is important, is more important than this, so we better get on to the next. And then when we're there, the next thing is more important than that. And somehow we, we find ourselves half-hearted and one foot out the door. And there's no end to that. Now, it's not possible to be really present and focused and with each person give them all the time that they might want. That's not realistic. But it doesn't mean you've got to spend you know, a half an hour of meaningful, in-depth conversation with everybody you meet or with every task that, that you do. If, you, um, if you've been fortunate enough to, to see in the last couple of years a, a woman, a holy woman from Indi India uh, named Amachi, uh, Ma Amritanandamai, but called affectionately Amachi, She's just this very beautiful being who radiates love. It's very powerful being around her. And she has hundreds of people in India, I hear thousands of people, come up for darshan in which you come up and you just come up and get hugged and get stroked and, and uh, look into her eyes and that's it. You know. When you go up there, it's not like you're saying, gee, I want another half hour. You know, that'll do it for me. One hug, a really focused, attentive hug, or a real moment of presence with somebody that connects and says, Hi, I hear you. It's nice to, nice to be with you. And that's much more powerful than 30 minutes of being half-hearted and thinking you need to go on to the next place. So when we're present for someone, not only are we more fully with the experience, but we also create a space for, for that other person to be heard and to connect with themselves. You know when you're pe with people who really can be present for you? It's like all of a sudden you can hear yourself. And that's a, a real gift that we can give to each other. That requires some slowing down at least to the point of not having your foot out the door. <clears throat> By slowing down, something else that we can do is start to contact our intentions behind our actions. Because when we don't know what our intentions are, we act usually from habits, from deluded places usually, and there can be lots of different motives behind our actions. It can be noble ones, there can be confused ones. There's mixed motives for almost all actions. When you can slow down enough to get clear about where it is that you're coming from or where it is that you'd like to come from, then you can start to, to call forth that energy. Things like communication. We can communicate to be right, to impress, for control, or for greater understanding and communication. Sometimes they can be mixed together. All it takes is a little bit of focusing on your priorities and seeing why it is that you really want to communicate your highest intention. And that can be the energy that your words are riding on. Same way with our actions. Are we coming from image? Are we coming from confusion? Are we coming from a caring in our actions? All of karma is based on this notion of intentions. What you do in helping others, it's not as important as why you do it. So we can get out of our roles of being somebody and just get in touch with the place that's the source of our actions from caring, from trying to understand. That doesn't mean that we can't enjoy our skillful actions. There's, there can be a real delight in doing something kind 
and serving. It doesn't mean that we, we have to dismiss that kind of, um, of connection saying, gee, that's a wonderful thing that I did. You know, how neat. How good it feels. That's different from a conceit of what a wonderful person I am, but just, gee, how good it feels. And it's a, a very useful practice I've been finding, a healthy practice to just check in, especially when you're confused, and ask for a moment, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And then you can perhaps be a bit more fully motivated by an inspired source. One example, I, I have a, a business besides the teaching. And I can believe in the things that I, that I promote. <clears throat> Sometimes I can be hoping to get something from somebody. Sometimes I can be sharing because I really feel that it will be of value and of service. There's a big difference. And people can feel it. And I can feel it when I'm kind of tuned into it. Or teaching, for instance. Teaching can be coming from image. It can be coming from ego. It can be coming from gratitude for how we've been touched, how I've been touched. Big difference. So just to come into contact and get clear, why is it that I'm doing this? It can be very helpful. <clears throat> Living the teachings from day to day, uh, it takes a lot of patience because we're not saints. We don't have it all together. Um, it's been said, Jack Cornfield uses this, uh, this expression, the spiritual journey requires a cup of wisdom, a barrel of love, and an ocean of patience. It's a more a process of becoming the teachings as well as expressing a pure, spontaneous mind in this moment, the expression of an enlightened mind. Little by little, there's a process of purification where we can become the teachings. And we might have a little understanding, glimpses of, uh, of the transcendent reality that won't fix us or eliminate our neurotic behavior. Very few people, as I said, are finished with their work, have no more growth. It takes a tremendous ability to again and again be with ourselves, be with what's really going on. And in our daily lives, this is going against the current to really take a careful look because the current, our society, doesn't support our waking up. We have to do it. Our society supports greed, hatred, and delusion. And this is a, a quote from, uh, from a book, The Addictive Organization, and that says, the society in which we live needs addictions and its very essence fosters addictions. It fosters addictions because the best adjusted person in the society is the person who is not dead and not alive, just numb, a zombie. When you're dead, you're not able to do the work of the society. When you're fully alive, you're constantly saying no to many of the processes of the society, the racism, the polluted environment, the nuclear threat, the arms race, drinking unsafe water, and eating carcinogenic foods. Thus, it is in the interests of the society to promote those things that take the edge off, get us busy with our fixes, and keep, keep us slightly numbed out and zombie-like. Consequently, the society itself not only encourages addictions, it functions as an addict. That's a big current to be going against. <clears throat> but when we can start to be ourselves, be a genuine, imperfect Buddha, and just live the Dharma as best we can, then there's a possibility. Just being who we are with a little bit more care. <clears throat> Last night, Christopher spoke of the sense of wonder and, and awe, awesomeness of the mystery. We can bring humility and patience with the awesomeness of, of this process of becoming, of becoming 
free. Freedom in this moment and freedom over time, gradually living day to day in the nitty gritty ways. And the practice shows us just how profound the simplicity and honesty can be in our lives. More than the ideas, the concepts, the things that you'd read, we're most touched by the Dharma by the people who embody the words, who express it by how they live. And so, more than just practicing following our breath or being with this moment, when we leave the retreat, living the Dharma in particulars of relationship and day-to-day activities, just being ourselves, being willing to watch and to grow, slowing down a bit, being a bit kinder with ourselves, with others, getting in touch with our intentions, then we can start to make the teachings really come to life. And not just for ourselves, but for everyone around us. It's a real gift that we can give, the gift of living the Dharma. And while we're here, we don't have to worry about the lofty concepts and ideas. Because if we can meet just this moment, this moment in front of us with kindness and with understanding, then we're practicing meeting the future moments with that same kind of wise, caring attention. Well, let's just sit for a few moments. Meeting this moment with kindness, with openness, So uh, before we we break for um, the walking meditation, Christopher had some some words he wanted to uh, share with you.
I may just take uh, three, four minutes of your time. And at this time, on the final evening of retreats, weekends, and longer ones, we or I speak just a few minutes about the principles upon which the uh, teachings are given and the spirit in which they are offered. And uh, over the years at this time I have uh, done this uh, quite regularly. And when you come, as many, perhaps all of you know from the letter which was sent out to you, uh, when you come here to uh, spend some days, all of us together, the costs of the uh, daily rate here cover all the uh, fairly widespread expenditure that's required to help make an event like this happen. And that uh, includes, of course, the renting of this uh, quite uh, large facility and something which uh, James and I have been using together uh, since the uh, early 80s and as well as other teachers and also of course the, uh, the food, the telephone bills, the, the correspondence and also the, the travel expenses for both uh, teachers, cooks and managers and so for example with uh, uh, Henrietta and myself in our coming from uh, Totnes in the west country of England to uh, San Francisco via the centre in Massachusetts which Jamie referred to the arrangement is for that, that one course, that is the course on the East Coast, pays one length of the journey and the other uh, course, this one here, pays the return journey for both of us. And that's also quite some uh, expense as you can appreciate. And all of that covers the, the running costs of putting a facility like this together. And with the teachings themselves, James and I and all of the teachers who are giving teachings of the Dharma and of the uh, insight meditation <coughs> tradition, uh, all uh, unanimously agree that there is the teachings themselves are truly priceless in every uh, meaning and sense of the word. And so with the uh, teachings here and and elsewhere, the way that we are working is to, to give the teachings and for the support for us, which is in the Pali tradition, that's the in Pali language, that's the language that the Buddha is said to have spoken in, it's called uh, dana, and dana means um, generosity or offering or donation, and the um, understanding is with us that you know, we give the teachings and those who wish to give something for our uh, support uh, there is uh, an envelope which is placed at the end of each retreat on the table downstairs with uh, various literature and propaganda that's put out <laughs> and I think includes in that two uh, envelopes one of the uh, envelopes uh, directed to the teachers and the other for the uh, cooks and um, managers. And for myself, if I may uh, speak a, a little here, that uh, for more than 20 years I have been uh, supported exclusively, have no other uh, support, financial support, other than what comes through the uh, donations, through, through the envelope, or in some cases a bowl in other places. And this has been my source of support and I am immensely grateful for initial years of course as, as a monk and the begging bowl and, um, and these days uh, in a slightly different form in the West. <laughs> <laughs> if you just put food in I'm not sure if it would last. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and in that for and the same applies also for uh, for Henrietta too highly uh, reliant on the donations so that we as uh, with the four of us too can continue doing this work and offering these teachings uh, uh, freely. And I think an important aspect uh, incidentally a very practical uh, aspect of this in 
there are other ways of working, and very valuable ways. What we could very easily, and it's a fine way to work, simply add a stipend onto the daily rate, you know, several dollars a day, or whatever it might be, and make that uh, the form. And but what can happen for some people is that they wouldn't be able to afford that. And by not making any charge for the teachings, what that does in practi real practical terms, it keeps the daily rate as low as we can make it. And that's a major consideration with IMW here, with uh, IMS and with Gaia House and other centres and facilities that we work with, to keep the rate as low as we possibly can. And there's always many discussions about ways to economise and to keep that principle alive. In that, in finally, in with the teachings and with the donations, I think you would agree that the, the costs are genuinely are very, very low and extremely reasonable. And as many of you know and, and will know, especially well in California, that the cost of a, a, a weekend, three days here, in some places and situations, wouldn't even be a deposit for the weekend, and it would be non-residential. And and here we, in the days here, both in the eight days that we were here together before and in this weekend, I think it's a, a real tribute to everybody concerned, staff and managers and organisers and all the, all the people involved, that this principle is kept alive. And I regard it in a world where there's so much profiteering and sadly spiritual profiteering and empire building and and all of that taking place, I think, and I regard it as a, a real pillar of the principle of the teachings to, to teach in this way. And sometimes in the States, as I may say this personally, some people have been extremely kind and, and people have said to me, Christopher, you could come and give a, a weekend and, and to help you financially, we could um, um, give you, for each person that comes, uh, 30, 40, 50 dollars a day for each person and we can guarantee 40 or 50 people for the weekend and that would give you support, real support during the year. And therefore in a weekend I could receive several thousand dollars. And this is very kindly, it's been offered and said to me in a number of times on my visits here. And I appreciate the kindness and the thoughtfulness and I just say, no thank you, not for me. I don't want anybody paying that, that kind of extra over and above the, the daily rate for me. And I prefer that we work on this principle of donations, of dana, and I think it's a very profound message. Teaching sometimes we give maybe not, may, may not be so profound, but that's a very <laughs> profound one. <laughs> but that, that it's given in the spirit of service and and it's an honour and a privilege to be part of that service and James, Henrietta, Eric and I are very grateful for having received the teachings freely and having the uh, honour of giving them freely as well. And with myself, as, uh, as I mentioned some days ago here, that uh, being the uh, uh, somewhat of a poor cousin, of uh, one of the poor cousins visiting America, well, that used to be a former colony or something. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that uh, I'm very personally very very grateful for the immense support and it allows me to give support to Gwenwin, my ex who lives a few minutes walk away and our daughter Lashona <laughs> <laughs> uh, who's nine years of age and the support which I receive from my visits here is immeasurable I really am incredibly appreciative uh, of that and also the donations that come to Guy House and things like that people never go there and just give support to events in England. It's very, very thoughtful. So that's the few minutes I'm going to take. <laughs> if um, the bell um, ringer, please, would kindly um, ring the bell. And tomorrow, I just would mention with regards that tomorrow morning, the uh, lots of information will go out, and books and tapes of James and I and other teachers, all that will put out in the morning. The silence will end in the morning and there'll be the envelope for the cooks and managers who work so kindly and supportively for us during these days and uh, put aside other things in their life to make sure that this happens and, to, and which all of us are very grateful for, I know. 
And then, then envelope, the dana envelopes one for those who have been here for the uh, eight day period and also the weekend period and, to, and those are available as well. So if uh, the bell ringer again would kindly ring the bell for us in about 25 minutes time and this time is for some sitting or walking time and then we'll have some uh, inquiry together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.